Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Do you feel a shiver up your spine from fear? Yes, it's another story from the Nightshade Diary. You know what that means. Check under the bed and make sure no one or nothing is there. Is the closet door securely shut? Then leave your disbelief behind. Amp up your imagination and hang on tight for another ride into terror and mystery. And like all good horror stories, just imagine it's a dark and stormy night. And remember, screaming like a little girl is permitted. The Life Boy by A. Erskine Ellis Leaning pipe and mouth on the engine room rail, I was dreamily watching the rhythmic movement of the huge engines of the Canadian Pacific liner Montauk, on which I was returning to Glasgow after a business visit to Ottawa. We had taken the pilot on board and were passing up the Firth of Clyde about halfway through the first dog watch. There was so dense a fog in the Firth that the shores on either side were invisible and the ship was steaming dead slow, her siren continually emitting its warning bellow all the way across the Atlantic. I had been looking forward to the first sight of the beautiful coast of this noble estuary, and I pictured to myself time and again the tall hills of Iran and Argyle, with the afternoon sun glinting on their rocky summits. Now the only visual evidence that Scotland stood where it did was a fleeting glimpse of Isla Craig, looming dimly through the mist. For the rest, we might just as well have been in mid-Atlantic. Disgusted with the state of affairs, I sought refuge in the engine room, it was taking a fond farewell of the great throbbing creature, which to me was an all but sentient being. Suddenly, the engine room telegraph clanged, and the indicator pointed to stop. Almost at once the bell rang again, and the pointer swung up to full speed astern. As the great vessel shuddered to a standstill, I ran up on deck to ascertain the cause of the sudden stoppage, fearing that a collision was imminent or we were about to run aground. I was not in time to witness the accident, but it appeared that we had rammed and sunk a small motorboat. When I reached the ship's side, two people, a man and a woman, were struggling in the water. Two life boys were at once thrown overboard, one of which fell some distance from the two people, the other just between them. The woman caught hold of the boy near her, and then took place the most revolting exhibition of selfish cowardice it has ever been my misfortune to witness. The man, instead of making for the other life boy, some ten yards off, which he could well have done, seized the one the woman was clinging to and, after a struggle in which he repeatedly struck her, succeeded in loosening her hold and clung to it himself. As a matter of fact, the life boy could easily have supported them both, but either the fellow was crazed with panic 
or else he deliberately sought to drown the woman. She sank almost at once, and although one of the ship's officers and a passenger plunged in after her, their gallant effort was unavailing. Meanwhile, a fishing boat came on the scene, the fog having now thinned considerably and picked up the man who had so aroused the indignation of all who witnessed his dastardly action. Luckily for him, he was not brought on board the liner, for popular feeling was running high, but was landed by the fishing boat at Weymouth Bay. I noticed that the lifebuoy was not returned to the Montauk, but was inadvertently taken away by the fishing boat. Business called me abroad again as soon as I returned to Glasgow, so I never read any account of the accident in the papers, and certainly had no premonition of involvement in the dramatic sequel. Later that year I spent a fortnight at Covendale, a seaside resort within view of the hills of Argyle and the Cowles of Butte. Most of my time was spent boating and fishing, and I hired a small motor boat from a fisherman, Angus McNichol. He had a hut at the top of the beach, in which he kept his boat gear and nets, a key to which he lent me. One morning, when I had gone down to the beach to take out the boat, it came on to rain so heavily that I took shelter in McNichol's hut, where I found the old fellow splitting open mussels for bait. After we had chatted for some time, I observed hanging on a peg beside my head a life boy with the name S.S. Montauk, painted on it in bold black letters. Being surprised to see this, I inquired of Angus how he happened to come by one of the liner's life boys, mentioning that I had recently made a voyage in that very ship. When was you on the Montauk? he asked. The last week in February, I replied. Then maybe you'll mind a motorboat being sunk by the liner off towards point as she was coming up the Clyde? Indeed, I remember it only too clearly. I answered, a woman was drowned, and the man who took her life boy from her was picked up by a passing fishing boat. Well, it was my fishing boat, and it was Massel that hauled the man aboard. But what it you said about his taking the woman's life boy? I didn't ken that. The wretch actually forced the woman to release her hold on the life boy and let her drown. I replied hotly, that man is a dastardly murderer. The best thing you could have done would have been to leave him to drown too. Did you tell me so? exclaimed the old fisherman. And yet she was his own wedded wife, so he told me, and he was overcome with grief at what had happened. Overcome with fright, more likely, I retorted, and the weather having improved, went out to the boat. The following week, as I was walking back to my hotel, after a day's fishing, I noticed a man coming towards me on the opposite side of the road, whose appearance was vaguely familiar. It was not till later, when I was wallowing in a hot bath, that I recollected his identity. Brief as was the glimpse I had caught of him at the time of the accident, I was positive that I had again seen the unpleasant creature whose boat had been rammed by the Montauk. Here he was, then apparently staying in Govendale. I firmly hoped I should not meet him again, but I was destined to see him once more. Next morning, when I went along to the hut, I found Angus McNichol standing outside the open door, contemplating the interior with an air of puzzled annoyance. He turned when he heard my footsteps on the shingle, and I saw this customary friendly beam had given place to a wrathful scowl. What was she up to last night? he growled. I did not think it was the kind of gentleman who would let the liquor have the better of him. What on earth do you mean? I replied, considerably nettled by his tone. I never touch strong drink. Looking past him into the hut, 
I saw what had so upset his equanimity. The place was in a sorry mess. It appeared to have been inundated by the sea, and tangles of seaweed were scattered over everything. The hut was sopping wet, and the middle of the floor, covered with slimy green algae, lay the Montauk's life boy. Great heavens above, I cried. However did this happen? The tide cannot have reached as far as this. No. And what's more, the door was locked, replied Angus. To certain, my knowledge was the folks had a key to this hut, ye and myself, and I can tell you I didn't make this mess. Neither did I, I assured him. When I put away my things last night, I left the hut in its normal condition and locked the door as usual. Some mischievous ruffin must have picked the lock or got hold of a key to fit it. It'll be an ill day for him if I get my hands on him. Whoever he is, he'll not be worth muggle when I'm through with him. And he dourly set about clearing up his hut. I fished and locked fine that day, and on the way back was delayed by an engine trouble. Halfway through the Kyle's the motor gave an expiring groan, and it was a good half hour before I got it started again, after being in some peril of drifting on the rocks. By the time I had tied up to the mooring boy at Covendale, it was almost dark. I hooked in the dinghy, which Angus kept moored at hand for my use, and sculled ashore. On nearing the beach I observed someone sitting, or crouching, on the boat slip, and concluded it was probably some belated angler, or perhaps Angus McNichol, awaiting my return. As I drew alongside the slip, this person rose up and made up the beach towards the hut, with what seemed, so far as I could see in the dim light, a peculiarly awkward and lifeless gait. As I leapt out of the dinghy, this individual seemed to enter the hut, but which I had made fast the boat and walked up the beach. I found the door locked. A curious illusion, I thought. The person must have passed close to the hut and gone up to the road, though I could have sworn he went in. I wonder whether he had anything to do with that almighty mess last night. So musing, I opened a door and was just about to deposit my fishing tackle in the hut when two things made me draw hastily back. The first was a strong smell of seawater. The second was something black and wet, crouching on the floor. I hastily slammed and locked the door and set off in search of Angus. As a chance, he was just coming along the road to see if I had returned and also in the hope of waylaying the rogue who had messed up his hut. I told him that I thought the culprit was actually hiding inside the hut, having contrived to enter in some mysterious manner, and promised to keep a close watch while he fetched the light and the weapon. Angus at once untied the dinghy and sculled out to the motorboat, returning with a masthead lantern, which he lit in a stout spar. You take the lick and open your door, he ordered, while I give him a taste of this, brandishing the spar with a chuckle of grim satisfaction. Well, don't murder him, I cautioned, and unlocked the door. As I flung it open, the lantern illuminated the inside of the hut so that we could see clearly what lay huddled on the floor. Angus took a step backwards and dropped his improvised club while I nearly followed suit with the lamp. The hut was littered with seaweed and soaked as before. In the middle of the floor, her waist encircled by the Montauk's life boy sat or crouched a woman. Her clothes and her hair, which hung down over her face, were bedraggled and dripping wet, and there was that about her appearance, which gave the impression that she was not alive. We withdrew a few paces and considered our next move. I told Angus to call the nearest doctor, while I went to fetch my car from the hotel garage, and we should obviously require some conveyance to take the poor creature away, 
whether alive or dead. I accordingly locked the door once more, and we set off on our respective errands. When I returned with the car, there was not long to wait before Angus appeared in company with the doctor Stead, whom I had met once or twice at golf. We three walked down to the hut, and I unlocked the door. The astonishment and mortification of Angus and myself can well be imagined, for there was no one in it. The place was still littered with rack and soaking wet, and the life-boy lay on the floor, but the woman had vanished. We looked all around the hut and searched the beach in the vicinity, but to no avail. What the doctor thought of it all can be guessed, but he was too much of a gentleman to speak his mind. Whenever we met in future he would glance at me apprehensively, as though expecting me at any moment to suffer another attack. As for Angus and myself, we retired for the night, sorely bewildered men. The next day I did not go out fishing, but spent most of the morning and afternoon on the golf course. After dinner I took a stroll down to the beach to make sure the motor-boat was in good order for the morrow. I got Angus to attend to a few things, and then we sat for a while on the gunwale of a boat, smoking and discussing last night's inexplicable happenings. As it was beginning to grow cool, and a squall was approaching across the firth, I presently rose to depart. Just then we noticed a small Bermuda rig cutter entering the bay, and idly stood to watch her come in. She was coming up close-hauled against the wind, and made a pleasing picture with the heather-clad hills as a background. When the cutter had arrived almost opposite the spot where Angus and I were standing, and was quite close to the end of the jetty, the squall we had noticed approaching suddenly burst upon us. The two men aboard the yacht were taken unawares, and were quite incapable of coping with the emergency. Angus yelled instructions at them, but they lost their heads completely, and almost at once the boat capsized. One of the men clung to the rigging, while the other whom I recognized, with a nasty shock, as a poltroon who had let his wife drown, struck out for the shore. He was manifestly not a strong swimmer, however, and soon got into difficulties. Angus grabbed the Montauk's life-boy off its peg and threw it, as far as he could toward the man in the water, while I rushed down to the slip and pushed off in the dinghy. As I started to row, I heard a hoarse cry behind me, and turning my head saw the man struggling frantically with a life-boy. He seemed to be finding some unaccountable difficulty in getting hold of it, so I called to him to get his arms over it, and he would be quite safe. I shall never forget the dreadful cry gave. I can't. There's something in it. There's something in it. Oh, my God, it's her. And letting go of the life, boy, he sank like a stone. In a few strokes I reached the spot, and with much difficulty dragged him up from the bottom with a boat hook. But it was too late. I took the other man off the capsized yacht and rode quickly back. Dr. Stead was summoned and did all he could for the man, who had sunk, but he was beyond aid. At the post-mortem he was found to have died of heart failure, not drowning. His features were set in expression of abject terror. After the dead man had been removed, we looked about for the life-boy, but it was nowhere to be seen. It could not have possibly drifted out of sight in so short a time, yet it was not seen again until some weeks later in another place. The surviving yachtsman told us that his companion was a Mr. Oliver Pothington, a Lancashire industrialist, and remarked that it was a sad coincidence that Mrs. Pothington had been drowned not long ago, when the boat she and her husband were in was sunk in a fog and collision with a liner, only a few miles from that very spot. It seems almost as though there is some evil fate at work, he added sententiously. Angus McNichol was troubled with no more unwelcome visitants to his hut. A few weeks later, the skipper of one of the Clyde paddle steamers, on which I was crossing from Largs to Millport, 
sighted a strange object floating some fifty yards to starboard. On closer inspection, this proved to be a life buoy, with someone clinging to it. A boat was lowered, and the sailors were horrified to find, when they reached the life buoy that supported the body of a woman, now little more than a skeleton, her arms tightly hooked over it in a vice-like grip. Pointed on the boy was the name S.S. Montauk. It was found impossible to disengage the body from the life boy, so it was covered with a tarpaulin and taken as it was into Millport, where the boy was cut away. The remains were identified from the clothing and jewelry as those of a Mrs. Pothington, who had been drowned some months previously as a result of the motorboat in which she and her husband were out for a cruise, coming into collision with a liner Montauk. How her body came to be clinging to one of the liner's life boys is an unsolved mystery of the sea. Mrs. Pothington was laid to rest beside her husband in Govendale Cemetery. A year later, I was again on holiday at Govendale, so one Sunday morning I made a pilgrimage to the cemetery. There was little difficulty in finding the grave. Pious relatives had caused to be erected an imposing marble tombstone as a memorial to the deceased couple. Engraved below their names was a verse from the Scottish Psalter. Deliver me out of the mire from sinking do me keep. Free me from those that do hate me, and from the waters deep. Let not the flood of me prevail, whose water overflows, nor deep me swallow, nor the pit her mouth upon me close. Framing the inscription was a most realistic carving of a life boy. The Lady of Rosemount by Sir T. G. Jackson And so, Charlton, you're going to spend part of the long at Rosemount Abbey. I envy you. It's an awfully jolly old place, and you'll have a really good time. Yes, said Charlton, I am looking forward to it immensely. I've never seen it. You know, it has only lately come to my uncle, and they only moved into it last Christmas. I forgot that you knew it and had been there. Oh, I don't know it very well, said Edwards. I spent a few days there, a year or two ago, with the last owner. It will suit you down to the ground, for you are mad about old abbeys and ruins, and you'll find enough there to satisfy the whole society of antiquaries as well as yourself. When do you go? Very soon. I must be at home for a week or so after we go down, and then I think my uncle will expect me at Rosemount. What are you going to do? Well, I hardly know. Nothing very exciting. Perhaps take a short run abroad a little later. But I shall have to read part of the long, for I am in for greats next term. By the way, it is just possible I may be somewhere in your direction, for I have friends near Rosemount who want me to spend part of the vacation down there. All right, said Charlton. Don't forget to come over and see me. I hope I may still be there. Meanwhile, au revoir, old man, and good luck to you. Charlton remained some time at its window, looking on the quad of his college. Term at Oxford was just over, and the men were rapidly going down. Hansoms were waiting at the gate. Scouts and messengers were clattering down the staircases with portmanteau and other paraphernalia property youth, and piling them on the cabs. Friends were shaking hands and bidding goodbye. In a few hours the college would be empty, and solitude would descend upon it for four months, broken only by occasional visitors, native or transatlantic. The flight of the men would be followed by that of the dons to all parts of Europe or beyond. The hive would be deserted, and the porter would remain supreme over a vast solitude, monarch of all he surveyed. Charlton was not due to go down to the next morning. He dined in the junior common room with three or four other men, the sole survivors of the crowd, and then retired to his rooms to finish his packing. That done, he sat on the window seat, looking into the quad. It was a brilliant night. 
The moonshine slept on the grass and silvered the gray walls and mullioned windows opposite, while the chapel and hall were plunged in impenetrable shadow. Everything was still as death. No sound from the outer world penetrated the enclosure, and for the busy hive of men within there was now the silence of a desert. There is perhaps no place where silence and solitude can be more sensibly felt than the interior of an Oxford college in vacation time, and there was something in the scene that appealed to the temperament of the young man who regarded it. Henry Charlton was an only child. His father had died when he was a lad, and his mother, broken down by grief, had forsworn society and lived a very retired life in the country. At Winchester and Oxford he naturally mixed with others and made acquaintances, but his home life was somewhat somber and his society restricted. He grew up self-contained, a reserved lad, with few friends, though those he formed were sincere and his attachments were strong. His temperament, poetical and tinged with melancholy, naturally inclined to romance and from his early youth he delighted in antiquarian pursuits, heraldic lore and legend. At school and college he reveled in the ancient architecture by which he was surrounded. His taste even carried him further into the region of physical research and the dubious revelations of spiritualism, though a certain wholesome vein of skepticism saved him from plunging deeply into those mazes, whether of truth or imposture. As he sat at his window the familiar scene put on an air of romance. The silence sank into his soul. The windows where friendly light was wont to shine through red curtains, inviting a visit, were now blind and dark. Mystery enveloped the well-known walls. They seemed a place for the dead, no longer a habitation for living men, of whom he might be the last survivor. At last, rising from his seat and half laughing at his own romantic fancy, Henry Charlton went to bed. A few weeks later, he descended from the train at the little country station of Brickhill in Northamptonshire, and while the porter was collecting his traps on a hand-barrow, he looked out for the carriage that was sent to meet him. Hello! Harry, here you are, said a voice behind him, and turning around he was warmly greeted by his cousin, Charlie Wilmot. A car was waiting into which he and his belongings were packed, and in five minutes they were off, bowling along on one side of the Northamptonshire roads, with a generous expanse of greensward on each side, between the hedges and the hedgerow timber. The country was new to Henry Charlton, and he looked about him with interest. The estate of Rosemount had lately come unexpectedly by the death of a distant relation of his uncle, Sir Thomas Wilmot, and the family had hardly had time yet to settle down in their new home. His cousin Charlie was full of the novelty of the situation and the charms of the abbey. I can tell you it's a rattling old place, said he, full of odd holes and corners, and there are the ruins of the church, which all sorts of things to be seen, but you have lots of time to look about and see it all, and here we are, and there's my dad waiting to welcome you at the hall door. They had turned at the lodge gate, and passed up an avenue at the end of which Henry could see a hoary pile of stone cables, mullion windows, massive chimneys, and a wide arc portal, hospitably open where Sir Thomas stood to welcome his nephew. Some years had passed since Henry had seen his relatives, and he was glad to be with them again. A houseful of lively cousins, rather younger than himself, had in former days afforded a welcome change from his own rather melancholy home, and he looked forward with pleasure to renewing the intimacy. His young cousin Charlie was just at the end of his time at Eton, and was about to go to university in October. The girls, Kate and Sissy, had shot up since he used to play with them in the nursery, and were now too old to be kissed. His uncle and aunt were as kind as ever, and after he had answered their inquiries about his mother, and given an account of his uneventful journey down, 
The whole party adjourned to the garden, where tea awaited them, under the trees, and then Henry, for the first time, saw something of the Abbey of Rosemount. This ancient foundation of Sanctus Edigius and Monte Rosarum had been a Benedictine house, dating from the 12th century, which, at the dissolution, was granted to a royal favorite, who partly dismantled and partly converted it into a residence for himself. His descendants, in the time of James I, had pulled down a great part of the conventual building and substituted for the inconvenient cells of the monks a more comfortable structure in the style of that day. Many fragments of the fine abbey, however, were incorporated into the later house. The refectory of the monks was kept and formed the great hall of the mansion, with its vaulted roof and tracid windows, in which there even remained some of the old storied glass. The abbot's kitchen still furnished Sir Thomas' hospitable board, and among the offices and elsewhere were embedded parts of the domestic building. North of the refectory, according to the usual Benedictine plan, had been the cloister and beyond that the church, which lay at a slightly lower level, the lie of the ground inclining that way from the summit of the Mount of Roses, on which the habitable part of the convent had been built. Of the cloister enough remained, though much broken and dilapidated, to show what it had been. But the greater part of the church was destroyed, for the sake of its materials when the Jacobian house was built. A considerable part of the nave, however, was still standing, part of it even with its vaulted roof intact, and of the rest, enough of the lower part of the walls, was left to show that the church had been of a fair size, though not on the scale of the larger establishments. Henry Charlton, with the greedy eye of the born antiquary, took in the general scheme of the abbey with his tea and buttered toast under the shade of the elms that bounded the lawn on that side of the house. But he had to control his impatience to visit the ruins, for after his tea his cousins insisted on a game of tennis which lasted till it was time to dress for dinner, and after dinner it was too late and too dark for exploration. They dined in the great hall, once the monk's refectory, but not too large for modern comfort, the abbey having been one of the smaller houses of the order, and the number of the brotherhood limited. Henry was enchanted and could not restrain the expression of his enthusiasm. Oh, said his aunt, I remember your mother told me you were crazy about architecture and antiquities. Well, you'll have your fill of them here. For my part, I often sigh for a little more modern convenience. But, my dear aunt, said Henry, there is so much to make up for little inconveniences in living in this lovely old place that they might be forgotten. Why, what do you know about housekeeping, said his aunt? I should like you to hear Mrs. Baldwin, the housekeeper, on the subject. How she toils up one staircase only to have to go down another. The house, she says, is made up of stairs that are not wanted, and crooked passages that might have been straight, and it took the maids a fortnight to learn their way to the food store. It's of no use, mother, said Charlie. You'll never convince him. He would like to have those old monks back again, and to be one of them himself, with a greasy cowl on his head and sandals on his naked feet, and nothing to eat but herbs washed down with water. No, no, said Henry, laughing. I don't want them back, for I like my present company too well. But I confess, I like to call up in my imagination the men who built and lived in these old walls. I believe I shall dream of them tonight. Well, Harry, said his uncle, you may dream of them as much as you please, so long as you don't bring them back to turn us out, and you shall have every opportunity for you are to sleep in a bit of the old convent that the abbey builders of the modern house spared. And who knows but that the ghost of its former occupant may not take you at your word and come back to revisit his old quarters. Harry laughed, 
as they rose from the table and said he trusted his visitor would not treat them as an intruder. The long summer day had enabled them to finish dinner by daylight, and there was still light enough for the old painted glass to be seen. It was very fragmentary, and not one of the pictures was perfect. In one of the lights they could make the, the part of the female figure, richly dressed. She had been holding something that was broken away, and beside her was the lower half of an unmistakable demon, with hairy legs and cloven hoof. The legend below ran thus, the last word being imperfect. Covilter diabolus tentavi comitasum. The next light was still more imperfect, but there was part of the same female figure in violent action with a fragment of a legend. He comtisa tentata a. Other parts, evidently of the same story, remained in the next window, but they too were fragmentary to be understood. In one light was a piece of a monk's figure and part of a legend. Hic freiter pavlis dat. The last of all was tolerably. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law, 18 plus, terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Perfect. It represented a female robed in black and holding in her hand a little model of a church. She was on her knees, prostrate before the Pope, who was seated and extended his hand in the act of benediction. The legend below said, Henry was much interested and wanted to know the story of the sinful countess, but none of the party could tell him, and indeed, none of them had till then paid much attention to the glass. Sir Thomas had once made a slight attempt to trace the identity of the countess, but with little success, and had soon given up to search. There's an antiquarian problem for you to solve, Harry, said he, but I don't know where you should look for the solution. The annals of Rosemont are very imperfect, and those within my reach I could find nothing bearing on the subject. I'm afraid, sir, said Harry, if you fail I am not likely to succeed, for I am only a very humble antiquary, and should not know where to begin. It seems to me, however, that the story must have had something to do with the history of the Abbey and that its fortunes were connected with the wicked countess, or the monks would not have put her story in their windows. Well then, there you have a clue to follow-up, said his uncle, and now let us join the ladies. The room where Harry Charlton was to sleep was on the ground floor in one corner of the house, and looked out upon the cloister and the ruined abbey church. It was, as his uncle had said, a relic of the domestic part of the abbey, and when he had parted with his cousin Charlie, who guided him thither, he looked around the apartment with the keenest interest. It was a fair-sized room, low-pitched, with a ceiling of massive black timbers, plastered between the joists. The wall was so thick that there was room for a little seat in the window recess on each side, which was reached by a step, for the window sill was rather high up above the floor. Opposite the window yawned a wide fireplace with dogs for wood logs, and a heap of wood ashes lying on the hearth. 
The walls were paneled with oak up to the ceiling, and the floor were not covered with rugs, was of the same material polished brightly. But for the toilet appliances of modern civilization, the room was unaltered from the time when the last brother of the convent left it, never to return. Henry tried to picture to himself his predecessor in the apartment. He imagined him sitting at the table reading or writing, or on his knees in prayer, on his simple shelf, would have been his few books and manuscripts borrowed from the convent library, to which he had to return them when they met in chapter once a year, under severe penalty in case of loss or damage. As he lay on his bed, Henry tried to imagine what his own thoughts would have been had he himself been that ghostly personage five centuries ago. He fancied himself in the choir of the great church. He heard the sonorous Gregorian chanting by a score of deep manly voices ringing in the vaulted roof and echoing through the aisles. He saw the embroidered vestments, the lights that shone clearer and brighter as the shades of evening wrapped arcade and triforium in gloom and mystery, and turned to blackness the storied windows that lately gleamed with the hues of the sapphire, the ruby, and the emerald. Pleased with these fancies, he lay awake till the clock struck twelve, and then insensibly the vision faded, and he fell asleep. His sleep was not untroubled. Several times he half awoke only to drop off again, and resumed the thread of a tiresome dream that puzzled and worried him, but led to no conclusion. When morning came, he awoke in earnest and tried to piece together the fragments he could remember, but made little of them. He seemed to have seen the monk sitting at the table as he had pictured him in imagination the evening before. The monk was not reading, but turning over some little bottles, which he took from a leathern case, and he seemed to be waiting for someone or something. Then Henry, in his dream, fancied that someone did come and something did happen, but it was that he could not remember, and of the visitor he could recall nothing except that he felt there was a personality present, but not so as to be seen and recognized, more an impression than a fact. He could remember, however, a hand stretched out towards the seated figure and the objects he was handling. More than this he could not distinctly recall, but the same figure recurred each time he fell asleep with slightly varied attitude, though with no greater distinctness. For the monk he could account by the thoughts that had been in his mind the night before, but for the incident in his dream, if so vague a matter could be called an incident, he could trace no suggestion in his own mind. The bright summer morning and the merry party at breakfast soon drove the memory of the dream out of his head. After breakfast there were the horses and dogs to be seen, and the garden to be visited. It was not till the afternoon that his cousins let him satisfy his longing to visit the ruins of the church and cloister. There they all went in my body. The cloister lawn was mowed smoothly and well tended, and here and there barely rising above the green sward were the stones that marked the resting places of the brotherhood. Part of the cloister retained its traceried windows and vaulted roof, and on the walls were inscribed the names of abbots and monks whose bones lay beneath the pavement. At the end of the western walk a finely sculpted door led into the nave of the church, the oldest part of the building, built when the ruder Norman work was just melting into greater refinement. Henry was in raptures and vowed that neither Fountains nor Rivolo could show anything more perfect. The girls were delighted to find their favorite parts of the building appreciated, and led him from point to point, determined that he should miss nothing. And now, said Sissy, you have to see the best bit of all, hasn't he, Kate? We don't show it to everybody for fear strangers might do mischief. So saying, she pushed open a door in the side wall and led them into a chantry chapel, 
built out between two of the great buttresses of the Nabile. It was indeed a gem of architecture of the purest 14th century Gothic, and Harry stood entranced before its loveliness. The delicate traceries on wall and roof were carved with a finish of ivory, and though somewhat stained by weather, for the windows had lost their glass, had kept all the sharp precision. Part of the outer wall had given way. Weeds and ivy had invaded and partly covered the floor, and a thick mass of vegetation was piled up under the windows against the masonry. "'What a pity to let this lovely place get into such a mess,' said Henry. "'I've never seen anything more beautiful.' "'Well,' said Charlie, "'it wouldn't take long to clear all this rubbish away. "'Suppose we set to work and do it.' So while the girls sat and looked on, the two men fetched some garden tools, and cut, hacked, and pulled up the weeds and ivy and brambles, which they threw out by the bench in the wall, and soon made a partial clearance. Henry had begun on the mass that stood breast-high next to the window, when a sudden exclamation made the others look at him. He was peering down into the mass of vegetation, of which he had removed the top layer, with an expression of amazement that drew the others to his side. Looking up at them out of the mass of ivy was a face, the face of a beautiful woman, her hair disposed in graceful masses, and bound by a slender coronet. It was evident that under the pile of vegetation was a tomb with an effigy that had long been hidden, and the very existence of which had been forgotten. When the rest of the vegetation had been cleared away, and there appeared an altar tomb on the top of which lay the alabaster figure of a woman, the sides bore escutcheons of heraldry, and had evidently once been colored. The figure was exquisitely modeled, the work of no mean sculptor. The hands were crossed on the breast, and the drapery magnificently composed. But with the head of the figure, the artist had surpassed himself. It was a triumph of sculpture. The features were of perfect beauty, regular and classical, but there was something about it that went beyond beauty, something akin to life, something that seemed to respond to the gaze of the observer and to attract him unconsciously, whether he would or not. The group of the discoverers hung over in a sort of fascination for some minutes, saying nothing. At last, Kate, the elder girl, drew back with a slight shiver and said, Oh, what is it? What is the matter with me? I feel as if there was something wrong. It is too beautiful. I don't like it. Come away, sissy. And she drew her sister out of the chapel in a sort of tremor. Charlie followed them, and Harry was left alone with his gaze still fixed in the lovely face. As he looked, he seemed to read fresh meaning in the cold alabaster features. The mouth, though perfectly composed and rest, appeared to express a certain covert attire. The eyes were represented as open, and they seemed to regard him with a sort of amused curiosity. There was a kind of diablerie about the whole figure. It was a long time before he could remove his eyes from the face that seemed to understand and return his gaze, and it was not without a wrench that at last he turned away. The features of the image seemed to be burned into his brain, and to remain fixed there indelibly. Whether pleasurably or not, he could not decide. For mixed with a strange attraction, and even fascination, he was conscious of an undercurrent of terror, and even of aversion, as if from something unclean. As he moved away, his eye caught an inscription in Gothic lettering, round the edge of the slab on which the figure lay. He just said, Alianora Comtisa Peccatrix. Que obi anodini anime. He copied the epitaph in his notebook, remarking that it differed from the usual formula, and in closing the book of the chantry, he followed his cousins back to the house. Well, here you are at last, said Lady Wilmot, 
as Charlie and his sisters emerged on the lawn. What a time you have been in the ruins, and the tea is getting cold. And what have you done with Harry? Oh, mother, said Sissy, we have had such an adventure. You know that little chantry chapel we are so fond of? Well, we thought it wanted tidying up, so we cleared away the weeds and rubbish, and what do you think we found? Why, the most lovely statue you ever saw. And we left Harry looking at it as if he had fallen in love with it and could not tear himself away. By Joe, said Charlie, just like old Pygmalion, who fell in love with the statue and got Venus to bring it to life for him. Don't talk so, Charlie, said Kate. I'm sure I don't want this stone lady to come to life. There's something uncanny about her. I can't describe what, but I was very glad to get away from her. Yes, mother, said Sissy. Kate was quite frightened of the stone lady and dragged me away, just as I was longing to look at her, for you never saw anything so lovely in your life. But there is one thing I noticed, Father, said Charlie, that I think wants looking into. I noticed a bad crack in that fine vault over the chantry, which looks dangerous, and I think Parsons should be sent to have a look at it. Thank you, Charlie, said Sir Thomas. I should be sorry if anything happened to that part of the building, for archaeologists tell me it is the most perfect thing of its kind in England. Parsons is busy on other matters for the next few days, but I will have it seen to next week. By the way, we shall have another visitor tonight. You remember Harry's college friend, Mr. Edwards? I heard he was staying at the Johnstons, and so I asked him to come here for a few days while Harry is with us. And here I think he comes across the lawn. Edwards had some previous acquaintance with the Wilmots, and was soon set down to tea with the rest and engaged for lawn tennis afterwards, a game in which he had earned a great reputation. Harry Charlton did not appear till the party was assembled in the drawing-room for before dinner. On leaving the abbey he was possessed by disinclination for the lively society of the lawn. His nerves were in a strange flutter. He felt as if something unusual was impending, as if he had passed a barrier and shut the gate behind him, and had entered a new life where strange experiences awaited him. He could not account for it. He tried to dismiss the findings of the statue as a mere antiquarian discovery, interesting both in history and in art. But it would not do. That face, with its enigmatical expression, haunted him and would not be dismissed. He felt that this was not the end of the adventure, that in some mysterious way the dead woman of five centuries back had touched his life, and that more would come of it. To that something more he looked forward with the same indefinable mixture of attraction and repulsion which he had felt in the chapel while gazing at those pure alabaster features. He must be alone. He could not at present come back to the converse of ordinary life, and he set off on a swinging walk through the fields and woodland to try and steady his nerves so as to meet his friends in the evening with composure. A good ten-mile stretch did something to restore him to his usual spirits. He was pleased to find his friend Edwards, of whose coming he had not been told, and when he took his place at the dinner-table next to him, his aunt, there was nothing unusual in his manner. The conversation during dinner naturally turned on the discovery that had been made in the abbey that afternoon. It was singular that so remarkable a work of art should have been forgotten and been overlooked by the Northamptonshire Archaeological Society, which had so many enthusiastic antiquaries in its rank. There had been meetings of the society in the ruins, papers about them had been read and published, plans had been made and illustrations drawn of various parts of the building, including the chantry itself, but there was no mention or indication given of the monument either in text or in the plates. Strange that no one should have ever thought of looking into that tangle of brambles by which it was concealed till that very day. I must go first thing tomorrow, said Sir Thomas, to see your wonderful discovery. The next thing will be find out who this pretty lady was. 
"'That I think I can tell you, sir,' said Henry, who now spoke for almost the first time, "'and I think it helps to solve the mystery of the sinful countess in the painted windows opposite, which puzzled us last night.' All eyes were turned to the fragments of painted glass in the hall windows, as Henry continued. "'You see in the first window the devil is tempting the countess, Ali. The rest of her name being lost, well, on the tomb is an epitaph, which gives the missing part. She is the Countess Alianora. No further title is given, but whoever she was, the lady whose tomb we found, is the same, no doubt, as the lady whose adventures were depicted in the windows. Now I know, broken Kate, I was frightened in the chapel. She was a wicked woman, and something told me so. It made me want to go away from her. Well, said Lady Wilmot, let us hope she mended her ways and ended her life well. You see, she went to Rome and was absolved by the Pope. Yes, but I bet she did not get absolution for nothing, said Charlie. Just look at her in the last picture, and you will see. She has a church in her hand. Depend on it. She got her wicked deeds pardoned in return for her gifts to Rosemont Abbey. And, I dare say, she rebuilt a great part of it, and among the rest her own chantry. Charlie, said Edwards, you ought to be a lawyer. You make out such a good case for the prosecution. At all events, said Sir Thomas, Charlie gives us a good lead for our research. I will look out the old deeds and try to find what connection, if any, there was between Rosemount Abbey and a Countess Eleonora of some place unknown. The rest of the evening passed in the usual way. A few friends from neighboring houses joined the party. There was a little impromptu dance, and it was near midnight by the time they retired to rest. Henry had enjoyed himself like the rest and forgot the adventure of the afternoon till he found himself once more alone in the monastic cell, looking out on the ruined abbey. The recollection of his dream of the night before then for the first time recurred to him. He wondered whether it had any connection with his later experience in the chantry, but he could trace none whatever. The dream seemed merely one of those fanciful imaginings with which we are all familiar, devoid of any further meaning. He was not, however, destined to repose quietly. This time, his dream showed him the same monk. He recognized him by his coarse features and shaggy brows, but he was in the nave of a church and in the massive round pillars and severe architecture of the arcs and the triforium. Henry knew the nave of Rosemount Abbey, not as now in ruins, but vaulted and entire. It was nearly dark, and the choir behind the pulpit was wrapped in gloom, in the midst of which twinkled a few lights before the high altar and the various saintly shrines. The monk held something small in his hand, and was evidently, as on the night before, waiting for somebody or something. At last Henry was aware that somebody had indeed come. A shadowy figure, draped in black, moved swiftly out from behind a pillar and approached the monk. What the figure was he tried in vain to discover. All he could see was just as he had happened on the night before. A hand was stretched out and took something from the monk, which it promptly hid in the drapery with which the figure was covered. The hand, however, was more clearly seen this time. It was a woman's hand, white and delicate, and a jewel sparkled on her finger. The scene caused Henry a dull terror, as if some unknown calamity, or as if some crime that he had witnessed, and he awoke with a start and found himself in a cold sweat. He got up and paced his apartment to and fro, and then looked out of the window. It was brilliant moonlight, throwing strong shadows of the broken walls across the quiet cloister garth where the monks of the old lay quietly sleeping till the last dread summons should awake them. The light fell full on the ancient nave walls, where buttresses and buttresses alternately seemed framed of ebon and ivory, and the light touched 
with a magic of mystery the delicate traceries of the chantry where lay the Countess Eleonora. Her face flashed upon his memory with its enigmatical expression, half attracting, half repelling, and an irresistible desire impelled him to see her again. His window was now open and the ground only a few feet below. He dressed himself hastily and clambered out. Everything was still. All nature seemed asleep. Not a breath of wind moved the trees or stirred the grass as he slowly passed along the cloister. His mind was in a strange state of nervous excitement. He was almost in a trance as he advanced into the nave where the shadows of a column and arc fell black on the broken pavement. He paused a moment at the gate which led him to the chantry and then entered as if in a dream. For everything seemed to him unreal and he himself a mere phantom. At last... He stood beside the tomb and looked down on the lovely countenance which had bewitched him in the afternoon. The moonlight fell upon it, investing it with an unearthly mystery and charm. Its beauty was indescribable. Never had he conceived anything so lovely. The strange, semi-satirical expression of which he had been conscious in the afternoon had disappeared. Nothing could be read in the features but sweetness and allurement. A passionate impulse seized him, and he bent down it and kissed her on the lips. Was it fancy, or was it real? The soft lips of warm life seemed to meet his own. He knew not. A delirious ecstasy transported him. The scene faded before his eyes, and he sank on the floor in a swoon. How long he lay there he never knew. When he came to himself, the moon had set, and he was in darkness. An indefinable terror seized him. He struggled to his feet, burst out of the abbey, fled to his rooms, scrambling in through the window, and threw himself panting on his bed. Henry Carlton was the last to appear next morning at the breakfast table. He was pale and out of spirits and roused himself with difficulty to take part in the discussion of to what was to be done that day. After breakfast he pleaded a headache and retired with a book to the library, while the others betook themselves to various amusements or employments. The girls were in the garden where they found old Donald the gardener, whose life had been spent at Rosemount, and in whose eyes the garden was as much his as his master's, and perhaps more so. Yes, Missy, he was saying, the weeds do grow terrible this fine weather, and as you was saying, it is time we cleaned up a bit in the old abbey. But I see that young gentleman has been doing a bit themselves, chucking all them briars and rubbish out on the grass, just as I had mown and tidied it. Why, Donald, said Sissy, you ought to have thanked them, for that chapel was an awful mess, and they have saved you some trouble. Well, Miss, I suppose they pleased themselves, but that's not where I should have meddled. No, no. And so saying, he moved away. But why not there, said Kate? Why not there of all places? Oh, I say nothing about it, said Donald. Only folks do say that there's them there as don't like to be disturbed. Indeed? What do they say in the village about it? I, I say nothing. I don't meddle with things above me. I shan't tell you any more, miss. It's not good for young women to know. "'But do you know, Donald,' said Sissy, "'what we found there?' "'What did you find, miss?' "'At her.' "'Oh, Lord, she was found once before. "'No good come of it. "'There, don't ask me any more about it. "'It's not good for young women to know.' "'So saying, Donald wheeled his barrel away "'into another part of the garden. "'Father,' said Kate to Sir Thomas, "'who now came up, "'Donald knows all about the tomb and the statue, "'and he won't tell us anything "'except that the people think it's unlucky to meddle with it. Have you ever heard of any superstition about it? 
"'Nothing at all,' said he. "'I have just been down to look at your discovery. "'The statue is a wonderful piece of work. "'I have never seen anything finer, either here or in Italy. "'But the chapel is in a bad way, and part of the roof threatens to fall. "'I have just sent word to Parsons to come tomorrow morning and attend to it.' "'They were joined presently by Edwards and Charlie, "'and the day passed pleasantly enough, "'with the usual amusements of a country house and holiday time. Henry did not take much part with them. He was abstracted and inattentive, and altogether out of spirits. He had but a confused idea of what had happened the previous night, but there seemed still to linger on his lips that mystic, perhaps unhallowed kiss, and there still floated before his eyes the mocking enigma of that lovely countenance. He dreaded the approach of night, not knowing what it might bring, and did his best to divert his mind to other things, but without success. His friend Edwards was much concerned at the change in his behavior, and asked Charlie whether Henry had been upset in any way during his visit. He was assured that till yesterday afternoon Henry had been as happy and companionable as possible, and that it was only that morning that the change had come over him. But I can tell you one thing, said Charlie. I believe he was out of his room last night, for the flower beds show footmarks, and the creepers are torn outside his window, showing someone had been getting in and out and there certainly has been no burglary in the house. Do you know whether he walks in his sleep? I have never heard that he does, said Edwards. We can't very well ask him whether anything is wrong, for he does not seem to invite inquiry, and has rather avoided us all day. But if it is a case of sleepwalking, we might perhaps keep a lookout tonight to prevent his coming to mischief. All right, said Charlie. My room is over his, and looks out the same way. I'll try and keep awake till midnight, and will call you if I see anything of him. That's well, said Edwards, but we must be careful and not be seen, for it is dangerous to wake a somnambulist, I believe. And so they departed through the several chambers. The first part of the night passed peacefully enough with Henry. He had no dreams to trouble him, but towards midnight he began to turn uneasily in his bed, and to be oppressed by an uneasy feeling that he was not alone. He awoke to find the moon shining as brilliantly as on the previous night, and bringing into view every detail of the ancient building opposite. A dull sense of some sinister influence weighed upon him, someone with whom he could not see whispering in his ear, You are mine. You are mine. He could see no form, but to his mental vision was clearly visible the countenance of the figure in the chapel, now with a satirical mocking expression, more fully shown, and he himself felt drawn, and he did not know whither. Again the mocking lips seemed to say, You are mine. You are mine. Half unconsciously he rose from his bed and advanced toward the window. A faintly visible form seemed to move before him. He saw the features of the countess more plainly, and without knowing how he got there, he found himself outside the room in the cloister garth, and entering the shade of the cloister, something impalpable glided on before him, turning on him the face that attracted him, though it mocked him, and which he could not but follow, though with an increasing feeling of terror and dislike. Still in his ears fell the words, You are mine, you are mine. And he was helpless to resist the spell that drew him on and on further into the gloom of the ruined nave. And now the shape gathered consistency, and he seemed to see the Countess Eleonora standing facing him, on her features the same mocking smile, on her finger the jewel of his dreams. You are mine, she seemed to say, mine, mine. You sealed it with a kiss, and she outstretched her arms. But as she stood before him in her marvelous and unearthly beauty, a change came over her. Her face sank into ghastly furrows. Her limbs shriveled 
and as she advanced upon him, a mass of loathly corruption, and stretched out her horrible arms to embrace him, he uttered a dreadful scream as of a soul in torture, and sank fainting on the ground. "'Edwards! Edwards, come quick!' cried Charlie, beating at his door. "'Harry is out of his room, and there's something with him. I don't know what it is, but hurry up, or some mischief may happen.' His friend was ready in a moment, and the two crept cautiously downstairs, and, as the readiest way not to disturb the household, got out into the cloister through the window of Harry's room. They noticed on the way that his bed had been slept in and was tossed about in disorder. They took the way of the cloister by which Charlie had seen Harry go, and had just reached the door that led into the nave, when his unearthly screams of terror fell on their ears. They rushed into the church, crying, Harry, Harry, here we are. What is it? Where are you? And having no reply, they searched as well as they could in the moonlight. They found him at last, stretched on the ground at the entrance to the fatal Chantry Chapel. At first they thought he was dead, but his pulse beat faintly, and they carried him out, still insensible, into the outer air. He showed some signs of life before long, but remained unconscious. The house was aroused and was put to bed, and messengers were sent to the doctor. As they watched by his bedside, a thundering crash startled them. Looking out of the window, they saw a cloud of dust where the Chantry had been. And the next morning it was seen that the roof had fallen in and destroyed it. Harry Charlton lay many weeks with a brain fever. From his cries and ravings something was gathered of the horrors of that fatal night, but never be induced to tell the whole story after he recovered. The fallen ruin was removed, and Sir Thomas hoped that the beautiful statue might have escaped. But strange to say, though every fragment of masonry was carefully examined and accounted for, no trace could be found of any alabaster figure nor of the tomb of the Comitessa Alianora. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.